Welcome to Licensed to Queer, where we're on a mission to uncover why James Bond appeals so much to LGBTQ plus people and our allies. Why not see 007 from a different angle? If this is your first time experiencing Licensed to Queer, welcome. You may, however, want to listen to the first episode of this podcast to get your bearings, or just carry on listening and hopefully it will all make sense in the end. This is an audio version of an article on the License to Queer website, licensetoqueer.com, where you will also find in-depth and idiosyncratic quasi-academic analyses of all aspects of queerness in Bond, from a range of voices across the LGBTQ plus spectrum. Join in the mission to uncover what makes Bond such a draw for queer audiences on the website or on social media at License to Queer. Queer Review Dr. No, written and read by David Lobergelis. You would think that a film which opens with three men pretending to be blind would alert us to the need to look at things differently. But six decades of straightwashing has obscured quite how queer Bond's beginnings were. It's high time we took the blinkers off. Bond was born this way. The name's Bond. Flaming Bond. Interviewed by Mark Cousins in 1997 while watching the beach scene from Dr No, Sean Connery remarked, He was popular with men and women, which is kind of unusual. Bond may not be gay, but he has a gay sensibility, which appeals to queer viewers, especially, but not exclusively, gay men like me. We all have our ideas about what a gay sensibility might be. The picture you have in your head when someone says gay man will inevitably draw on stereotypes. Less so if you happen to know gay men personally, more so if you rely on mass media's distorted presentation of what we're really like. According to Walt Odets, a psychologist with more than three decades of experience of providing therapy for gay men, gay men are distinct from their straight brethren because they integrate conventional masculine and feminine traits. James Bond fits this description perfectly. It's worth reflecting for a moment what makes men and women different. It's less than you might think. Biologically speaking, we're identical for at least the first six weeks in the womb, and then the chromosomes start mixing things up a bit. Emphasis on a bit, or should that be bits? Because sex mostly comes down to the sexual characteristics. Neuroscientists have shown conclusively that the differences between male and female brains are negligible. As one of those foremost neuroscientists, Professor Gina Rippon pithily observes, a gendered world makes a gendered brain. Our brains are plastic and permeable, and it's the experiences we are exposed to, or held back from, as children which set us on our gendered paths, which is still too often seen as a binary. As adults, how often do we pause and think about what these socially constructed gender differences come down to, really? If you sit down and make a list, it all starts to sound a bit pathetic. Walt Odets again observes that we all rely on carriage, manner of speech, dress and ornamentation to draw a line between men and women, which are all socially dictated trifles in Odette's mind, 
that in themselves are inconsequential. Of course, there are consequences socially, horrifying consequences sometimes for both men and women who feel the need to strive for possibly feminine and masculine extremes to prove their womanliness and manliness. There can be comfort in conforming to gender norms, but there can also be great pain. I think we'd all be better off if we accepted we were more in between than at the extremes. And that's where James Bond comes in. Ready for your close-up, Mr. Bond? I've been convinced for a long time that James Bond is so appealing to me as a gay man because he presents an alternative version of masculinity, one which integrates much that is feminine. I would argue this is more apparent from his psychology than his outward appearance. But let's begin at the beginning and examine that appearance as it first appears to us over a Chaman de Fer table in Dr. No. Using Walt Odette's four trifles, let's look, like the film does, an extreme close-up at Bond and see where he sits on the masculine slash feminine spectrum. It may help to re-watch the famous first appearance of Bond in Dr. No. It's readily available on YouTube, or I'm sure you've seen it many times. You can replay it in your head. Either way, let's start with Odetsi's first trifle, and that's carriage. Connery may walk like a panther, that least mask of the big cats, but we meet him from a seated position. In fact, the first thing we see of Bond is his hands clasping the shoe. If you watch Bond's manicured hands carefully through the scene, they convey both a masculine surety of purpose and a relaxed femininity, especially in contrast with the precise, manlier movements of his female opponent, Sylvia Trench. Whatever the origins of the stereotype of gay men having floppy wrists, and there are plenty of theories going back to Roman times, it was well established by the time of Dr. No. This carries through to all of Connery's Bond films, memorably reaching its apotheosis in the pre-title sequence of Diamonds of Forever. When asked to put his hands in the air, Connery does so with the floppiest of wrists. When Bond does eventually stand up and start moving around in Dr. No, we get the iconic panther-like walk, but while collecting his winnings, he leans casually against the cashier's cage. Erect posture and leaning forward are body language traits commonly associated with alpha maleness. By leaning backwards and supporting himself with the furniture, Bond is signaling to Trench that he recognises and respects her sexual potency. Neither of them are diminished by this. It's an intensely sexy scene. As Susan Sontag observed, what is most beautiful in virile men is something feminine. What is most beautiful in feminine women is something masculine. The second of Odette's trifles, manner of speech. Although the famous formulation of Bond, James Bond, originates in Fleming's books, it's curious that on film, it begins with a woman. Bond mirrors Trench, Trench, Sylvia Trench. 
A recent article in Elle reported on research that women are more likely than men to introduce themselves to someone they don't know using just their first names. Something the magazine's editor-in-chief decried as a symptom of women's self-doubt. Trench has not a scrap of doubt and perhaps taking her cue, Bond mirrors her masculine way of introducing herself. Perhaps having a female screenwriter was something to do with it. Johanna Harwood is finally getting the recognition she deserves for her contribution in getting Bond off the ground. Involved at various stages, it's not clear which part she wrote, but according to the interview she gave to Robert Sellers in 2019, she had the final say after various others, all men, had mucked around with it. Sellers also claimed she wrote the very first version of Dr. No, bookending the script's genesis. She is widely credited with taking dialogue and situations wholesale from Fleming's book, which other writers found too feminine. Whereas several of the male screenwriters wanted to make Bond like a more stereotypical movie tough guy, Harwood kept going back to Fleming. Without her, we probably wouldn't have the masculine-feminine Bond we enjoy today. Anyone familiar with the film industry's gender pay gap, more like a chasm, will not be surprised to learn that Harwood's colossal contribution to the series was not matched by a colossal salary. Dr. Luella Chapman has discovered from the original budget documents in the Film Finances Archive that Wolf Mankiewicz, credited in the final film, was paid £7,000, Richard Maybaum was paid £5,100, Berkeley Martha was paid £1,000, and Harwood was paid only £300. In their book, Some Kind of Hero, A.J. Chowdhury and Matthew Field maintain that Fleming had the idea to give Bond a half Scottish origin prior to the casting of Connery. Even so, when reading Fleming's books, I find it impossible to hear Bond speaking in anything other than the accent associated with the British upper classes, received pronunciation, aka BBC English. While not a member of the upper class himself, Bond moves effortlessly in those circles. No wonder Ian Fleming's first choice to play Bond was received pronunciation accented David Niven. The film Bond we got has a very recognisable Scottish burr from the very beginning. Connery suppresses this working class associated accent to varying degrees across his tenure as Bond, which in itself lends his interpretation of the character a queer vibe. Lots of gay people who have a stereotypical gay voice try to suppress it in certain social situations. Gay voice is a complex phenomenon and still under-researched, but most studies suggest gay men unconsciously copy sounds more commonly heard in women's speech, perhaps as a way of signalling their difference to other men. Perhaps it has evolutionary origins. It helps us find our tribe. But many gay men find their voices give them away and it can be a source of shame. One of the sounds which is typical of gay voice is a more prolonged use of sibilant S sounds, as in yas queen. Funnily enough, it's not that different phonologically to the S we associate with Sean Connery. Yash. If you try saying both of these and pay attention to what your tongue is doing while you do so, you will notice a small difference. With the gay S, 
you will find the very end part of your tongue is close behind your teeth at what we call the alveolar ridge. And this being up there lets air hiss past. When you do connery hiss, you will find roughly the same tongue position, but with the next part of your tongue rising upwards to the palate on the roof of your mouth. This changes the airflow and turns a gay hiss into the distinctive connery shh. Although Connery's variant of the Scottish accent is uniquely his, a less exaggerated shh sound has been associated with Scottish working class men. Another group which, like gay men, can be socially stigmatised. The difference is that they emphasise the S sounds when they want to assert their masculinity, whereas the gay S sound is used to indicate femininity. Phonologically, though, there's really not that much in it. Connery never entirely represses his Scottish accent in his Bond films, although present in Doctor No, it is not as flaunted as it is in later films, where Connery was perhaps asserting his own working-class Scottish roots and kicking back against a role he felt increasingly at odds with. It also makes the character appear to be something of an outsider, memorably while posing as a low-level health and safety officer, Klaus Hergesheimer in Diamonds Forever, Connery switches up his Scottish accent to tell the snooty Dr. Metz there's no reason to run down the little people. Odetsi's third trifle is dress. More so than his voice, it was Connery's wardrobe that effected his transformation into Bond. And it is, to use a somewhat old-fashioned euphemism for gay men, affected. Taken under the wing of director Terence Young, Connery had the full-on Pygmalion slash My Fair Lady treatment, with Connery in the role of the Cockney-accented working-class flower girl and Young as the upper-crust phonetics professor, determined to convert her into a proper lady. Both versions of this story come with a rich queer subtext. The musical even features a song, Why Can't a Woman Be More Like a Man? Midway through Dr. No, Bond tells Felix Leiter he was fitted for his suits in Savile Row, as if we needed to be told. Even less savvy dressers such as myself know as soon as we see Bond that he cares about his appearance and only wears the best. As well as being a literal place, Savile Row is a metonym for quality clothing. Technically, Bond suits in Dr. No were from the tailor Antony Sinclair, just off Savile Row, and his cocktail cuffed shirts came from Turnbull and Asser on nearby St. German Street. A 2019 GQ article noted that the aforementioned cocktail cuffs sneak a flamboyant grace note into Bond's otherwise very straight wardrobe. The cocktail cuff, like Bond, is an intermediate between two extremes. They avoid both the potential overdressingist femininity of cufflinks, which he wears in this introductory card game scene, incidentally, and the underdressed masculinity of buttons. Of all the real-life famous tailors from Savile Row, many of whom have clothed Bond, few that we know about were actually gay. Tommy Nutter, the rebel tailor of Savile Row, is a notable exception. He was at the epicentre of swinging London in the 1960s 
and dated the best friend and assistant of Brian Epstein, the manager of the Beatles, a gay man himself. Even so, the stereotype associated with well-dressed men and the men who dress them appears to be here to stay. Some well-dressed men are still regularly asked if they're gay, whether they are or not. While it is now more difficult to draw a dividing line between what clothing reads as gay and what reads as straight, we've also grown accustomed to dressing more casually in general. It swings and roundabouts, with the result that gay men are still, according to gay commentators like Paul Burston, seen as the arbiters of good taste. The whole premises of TV shows like Queer Eye rely on this entrenched assumption. So what might we assume of Bond? An impeccably well-dressed man frequenting a casino, a male-dominated space, until the early hours of the morning? The fourth of Walt Odetsi's trifles, which mark gender socially, is ornamentation. Cultural historian Sir Christopher Frayling observes that a great deal of Bond's characterization relies on his accoutrement. Whole websites are dedicated to the things in Bond's life we can acquire in order to emulate his lifestyle. Watches, cufflinks, sunglasses, luggage, perfumes, tie clips, cigarette cases. As it goes, this introductory scene in Dr. No is fairly restrained. But watch how the camera lingers on Bond's cigarette case and lighter. The whole act of selecting and lighting a cigarette is fetishized. The cultural meaning of smoking has changed a lot in the last century, going from a sign of socially desirable masculinity in the 1920s to some today arguing that it makes them pariahs if they choose to continue smoking. On film, cigarettes are frequently used to represent sex acts, a form of sublimation, especially common in film noir, which had only recently fallen out of fashion when Dr. No was made. The classic noir period usually ends around 1959. Dr. No continues the noir tradition with Bond and Trenchy's badinage and card game, a sort of foreplay. And yet, like the chain-smoking femme fatales of noir, here it's Bond who's smoking the cigarette. Am I reading too much into it? Possibly. In 1962, men as a whole smoked more than women still, so it was still a predominantly masculine thing to do. And I'm always mindful that sometimes a cigar is just a cigar, a phrase attributed to Sigmund Freud, although he probably never said it. However, smoking has for a long time been disproportionately common amongst the LGBTQ plus community, even if it took until the 1990s for tobacco companies to cotton onto this fact and start targeting adverts specifically at them. I grew up in a household where my mum smoked and my dad didn't, reinforcing the feminine association I had with smoking. For this gay male viewer, Bond removing one of his custom blend cigarettes, feminine, from his gunmetal, masculine, cigarette case is an affected action which epitomises his gay sensibility. Now, gay men are more than a collection of superficial trifles, but taken together, such things are usually enough to set off our gaydar, the instinct we have for spotting another of our kind. Although it's also worth pointing out that human beings' pupils dilate whenever we find someone attractive, so this is another sign albeit one that is mostly read by our subconscious, unless you know what you're looking for, which you do now.
you're welcome. So who you're attracted to sexually is a part of it, along with the way we walk and hold ourselves, how we sound when we open our mouths, what we wear and the little luxuries that ornament our existences. But what about who we love or if we even love? A four letter word. Do you have a woman of your own? Honey asks Bond, not long after meeting him. It's one of the most revealing exchanges in all of the Bond films. Revealing of Bond's gay sensibility, that is. Calling it an exchange is a bit of a misnomer. Bond doesn't supply a response to Honey's question. He's saved just in time by Quarrel getting his attention. How we interpret Connery's reaction depends a lot on our own attitudes and life experiences. This line always makes me think of those times when someone asked me if I had a girlfriend and I would fudge a response or change the topic of conversation. So is this what was intended in the film? Six decades down the line, we are all now so familiar with Bond as a prolific bedhopper, we might be inclined to read Connery's reaction as boastful. He doesn't just have a woman, we might think with a smirk, but several. Even if this was the first Bond film we'd ever seen, by this point in the story, we've witnessed him having sex with two women. Consider though, that Sylvia Trench was almost an inconvenience to him. He was in a hurry to catch his flight and he sleeps with Miss Taro to keep her busy while waiting for a government car to come and pick her up. Both times Bond is on the clock, quite literally. In both encounters, he checks his watch. Sex is reduced to something functional, a transaction to be completed as swiftly as possible. According to Terence Young, the second time he checks his watch, or obviously with Miss Taro, got one of the biggest laughs in the picture. But remember, this first Bond film was intended to have a serious tone, something I'll explore more in the camp section of this queer review. I'm therefore not convinced we can support the idea that the do you have a woman of your own scene is merely intended to be a joke about Bond's promiscuity. To me, it looks as if Connery is being tight-lipped because he knows Bond would rather not answer the question. He's embarrassed by the truth. It's not knavishness we read on Connery's face, but shame. Bond doesn't have anyone. He may sleep with a litany of women, but he's incapable of forming a meaningful attachment with any of them. That gay men have random hookups in lieu of relationships is yet another stereotype and as such should be treated with extreme caution. As a happily married man who has been with his husband for more than a decade, I know it's not the case for everyone. But I also spent my adolescence and my early 20s thinking I could never be in love with a man. And I didn't want to be in love with a man. Even the thought of doing the romantic things we see straight couples doing from an early age, holding hands, kissing, repelled me. I recognise now that this was internalised homophobia and one of the many hurdles gay men face in coming around to the idea that they can love and be loved in return. 
It's a phenomenon sadly familiar to many gay men and one that is much written about. The consensus is that while it's no longer as difficult to find a sexual partner in the age of dating apps, it's just as hard as it ever was to find and stay in a long-term relationship. Genital combat. In his highly influential Eight Ages of Man, published in 1950, psychologist Eric Erickson identified the stages humans go through from early infancy onward to emerge as healthy adults. Erickson claimed that all of us need to reconcile the conflict between needing to be our own person and forming intimate connections with others. In the stage before forming intimate connections, sex is a tool for finding out who we are. The sex we have in adolescence, early adulthood, dominated by phallic or vaginal strivings, is a kind of genital combat which is as accurate a description of Bond's couplings as I've ever heard. Based on Ericsson's model, Bond's development into a healthy adult has stalled. This is not quite as true for the Bond of Fleming's books as it is for Connery's portrayal of him in Dr. No. When Fleming was interviewed in August 1963 for BBC Radio 4's Desert Island Discs, he felt compelled to defend his character's bedroom antics. Representing the more prudish views of middle-class Britain, presenter Roy Plumley playfully provoked Fleming by stating that Bond takes sex almost as casually as he takes a drink. Fleming's response was somewhat defensive. Well, he has one girl per book, approximately, and that's one a year. He's a bachelor and he moves around the world pretty rapidly and um, I didn't see any great harm in that myself. Perhaps Plumley was conflating the Bond of the books with the character fronting the first Bond film from Russia with Love was still two months away from release at the time of the interview. In Doctor No, Connery engages in gentle combat with three women compared with the books one. Even so, Plumley was onto something which is heightened by Connery bringing an adolescent impishness to the character, which is not in the novels. It makes us think that, like an alcoholic drink, a woman in these films is an entirely consumable and expendable pleasure. The manolescent Bond simply isn't mature enough to take anything more seriously. In Doctor No, we get a rare glimpse of Bond's apartment, and it always looks to me like a boy's bedroom. With its pictures of brightly coloured antique cars on the walls, it's definitely in man-cave territory. Bond's immaturity is a character trait which is consistent throughout the series and remarked upon in the scenes with Q. In Octopussy, for instance, Q chastises Moore's Bond for his adolescent antics, and in Tomorrow Never Dies, he tells Brosnan's 007 to grow up an idea which is picked up in Bond's own dialogue when he later tells Waylin he never grew up at all. Even Dalton gets paid a visit from Uncle Q while on mission in Licence to Kill. And although the age dynamic is reversed with Ben Wishaw's Q, Craig's Bond acts like an ungrateful child in Skyfall when he doesn't get what he wants for Christmas. Other games. Had the Eon film series begun with the first book, Casino Royale, 
we may have had an explanation for Bond's inability to grow up and form a relationship, the trauma he experienced following the betrayal of Vesper Lind. But Sean of this in Doctor No, essentially going into the character cold, we're left wondering why he's incapable of love. In lieu of anything lasting, Bond has a string of casual sexual partners. Building on Ericsson's idea of genital combat, Walt Odets again uses the term sport sex to describe sexual acts which are purely physical, where any vulnerable emotions are strictly off the table. That Bond thinks of sex in gaming terms is revealed shortly after his initial combat with Trench over the card table. Bond says, tell me, Miss Trench, do you play any other games besides Shamanda Fair? Trench says, hmm, golf, amongst other things. So-called meaningless sexual encounters are never meaningless, according to Odette's. Instead, they are almost always a search for emotional connection to another man, but one conducted without the developmental experience that would facilitate and support the process. In other words, gay men don't know how to love because they haven't been taught how to. They haven't been shown any examples. They haven't gone through the same developmental stages of forming a romantic attachment with someone in adolescence, at least not openly. And concealing a crush on a boy in your teenage years is more likely to result in self-shame than learning an important life lesson that will allow you to form meaningful relationships later in life. Most gay kids simply don't get the opportunity to learn what romantic love is or looks like. Think of all those times, even before adolescence, when we ever heard parents, family members and friends refer to our possible romantic future attachments. If you're a non-queer person listening to this, you probably don't even remember specific occasions because they just seemed normal to you. But I'm willing to bet all of you listening to this who are predominantly attracted to the same sex as yourself, remember all of those times a grown-up asked you if you had a girlfriend if you're a boy, or a boyfriend if you're a girl, or if you were likely to have one in the near future. Of course, bisexual people, as usual, were invisible in such conversations. Those of us who experienced incidents like this probably have them burned into our memories, perhaps blurred together as one cringe-inducing composite. This is certainly true in my case. You might also remember, as I do, the evasive responses you came up with, either pre-rehearsed or on the spot. I'm just not into dating. There's no one I'm really into. I'm just too picky, too busy with school. Some of us may have continued to use such excuses later in early adulthood, prior to coming out. If we came out, I'll hold my hand up here. I use those excuses. Some gay people may even continue to use them after they've accepted who they are as a way of deflecting an even more uncomfortable truth. They don't know how to love someone else. Like a lot of gay men, I feel my own emotional development was held back merely by the fact of my being gay. I didn't have a relationship until my mid-twenties, years after most of my friends had been in several. I know plenty of gay people my age who have still not had what they would label a relationship. There are some that say striving for the one is a homonormative trait, devalues queer identity. I'm not saying people have to form one attachment with one other human being. I know some very happy gay people who have multiple long-term partners. 
Another unshakable stereotype popular with straight men in particular is that gay people have so much freedom because they don't feel as much pressure to settle down with the one. The heartbreaking reality for many gay men is that they, as Odette puts it, find themselves bewildered by relationships, often having ongoing sexual encounters that in the longer term become unsatisfying. Boy with a toy. James Bond's penis must be the most written about sex organ in all of popular culture. It receives its most insightful and witty treatment in Toby Miller's essay, Cultural Imperialism, James Bond's penis. Miller points out that it's not even subtext in Bond. The gun as phallus is encoded in the textuality of Bond. It does not await the textual analyst to uncover this fact. Rather, symbolism is played with deliberately. If Bond ended up on a psychoanalyst couch and said analyst managed to get him to open up, it wouldn't take long for discussion to centre on fallacies in their various forms. We've already dealt with cigarettes, unlike cigarettes and cigars. A gun is rarely just a gun in Bond. But what does 007's gun, scare quotes again, say about his integration of masculine and feminine qualities? The phallic shapes of guns speak to men's desire for, and hang-ups about, sexual potency. And this includes gay men. While shooting things is often seen as a straight male pastime, gay people love guns too. We are still, after all, fighting feelings of inadequacy. What better way to do this than by firing off a few rounds? There's a reason why a best-selling brand of sex lubricant marketed at gay men is called Gun Oil. Other products in the range are subtitled Force Recon, Loaded and Tactical Cream. Rather stretching that metaphor. Dr. No is the Fleming book where Bond gets issued with the gun he's now synonymous with, the Wolfer, although it's not the PVK model of later films. In the previous book, from Russia with Love, his otherwise trusty Beretta gets jammed and he ends up almost killed by Rosa Klebb's venomous shoe. While an incident that put Bond in the hospital for six months is alluded to in the film of Dr. No, the Klebb confrontation hadn't happened yet in the film continuity, thereby making the scene where the unnamed armourer, named Major Boothroyd in the book, berates him about his Beretta even more conspicuous. What are we to think about a man who, until his issue with a replacement, was happy carrying around a nice and light Beretta, only suitable for a lady's handbag? As the armourer talks about the Beretta, he weighs it up and down with his hand, as if weighing up a part of Bond's anatomy and finding it wanting. We are also told that the Beretta jammed, further emasculating 007, in place of the Beretta, Bond is made to use the Walther, which has a delivery like a brick through a plate glass window. Some have taken this to show that Bond is overcompensating for something, but he could have ended up with something far more imposingly masculine. In an amusing feature it made for the BBC during the filming of Goldfinger and fronted by an appealingly floppy-handed Sean Connery, Bond's guns are poured over. The real Boothroyd, the gun aficionado who's letter to Fleming including the ladies' handbag sentiment, demonstrates the stopping power of several guns in turn, 
the Beretta, and the Warfare, and finally the 44 Magnum, later made famous by Clint Eastwood in the aggressively macho Dirty Harry series and emulated briefly by Bond in Live and Let Die. The Walther's power sits somewhere in the middle of these two extremes, making it masculine, but not to an excessive degree. No wonder, according to Toby Miller again, Bondian sex, fairly progressive for its day, was too much for US critics, with Bond frequently criticised as a wuss. Bond is really wounded by having to let go of the Beretta, a direct order from M. Does he feel shame? because of the lady's handbag remark? Does he feel he's let himself down by wanting to hang on to something considered womanly? In the novel's version of this scene, things go well beyond a sentimental attachment to an inanimate object. Fleming devotes nearly an entire page to Bond morosely looking back over what he describes as his 15-year marriage to the weapon. He fondly remembers oiling the gun, packing the bullets into the magazine, before pumping the cartridges out onto the bedspread in some hotel bedroom. After this ritual, Bond would give the gun the last wipe of a dry rag, holster it, and finally pause in front of the mirror to see that nothing showed. You don't need the insight of a psychoanalyst to know there's more going on here than just a man swapping his gun for a better model. That gun was the most lasting, most meaningful relationship of his life. Bond leaves M's office saddened, but armed and ready. Genital combat awaits. Coming up next in part two of the Doctor No Queer Review, the queer aspects of Bond's allies, including Moneypenny, M, Quarrel, and the one and only, even though he's being played by many different people, Felix Leiter. 